You know what happens when you flip the light switch? How many people, dollars, and computers are involved to charge your smartphone? Do you understand the policy implications, political landmines, and local issues as we transition to clean energy? Well, we're here to answer those questions and more. Welcome to No Power. Hosted by informed industry experts Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti, No Power is all about demystifying the entire energy industry without getting into the politics, getting you more involved in the discussion, and empowering you with knowledge to make an intelligent choice today and the future. Head on over to nopowershow.com or wherever you get your podcasts so you can listen and subscribe and never miss an episode. And now, here are your hosts, Noha and Michael. Hi, welcome to No Power Podcast. Today's guest is Sue Dean Kelly, and she's a partner and co-chair of the energy practice for the law firm. I don't know what else to say about Sue Dean, but she's basically a living legend. She is one of the first female leaders in the energy industry. She was a commissioner in her home state of New Mexico at the Utility Commission there before she came over and was a commissioner at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. One of the, I think, really cool things that Sue Dean has done throughout her career, both when she was at the state and now in uh, in private practice, is working at the interface between sort of the U.S. energy sector and native tribes. So we're literally talking about Indian tribes in the desert southwest there. And what's amazing about that is that they're a country in and of themselves. So it's almost like international relations that we're working between those two sectors. And she's got a lot of really interesting history about that, as well as some uh, some unique opportunities that she sees for the future. Yeah. And Sue Dean was a commissioner actually when I was at FERC and was a real thought leader at the commission. And she's worked with gas companies. She's worked with renewable entities. And as Mike mentioned, she's worked with a lot of Native tribes. And one of the things that she has done, particularly post-Inflation Reduction Act or when the Inflation Reduction Act was getting shaped, is making sure that there is policy carved in there that if we're using tribal land, that it's a win-win for the tribe as well and is helping those communities better their economics and provide jobs. And, and so she's really helped negotiate a lot of things. She's she's also always working and collaborating with former commissioners and current commissioners to to really make sure there are win-wins for everybody. She is truly a dynamic leader. Absolutely. So for those who listened to episode two of No Power here when we had Travis Kavula from NRG on, big proponent of markets. And Sue Dean was sort of at the forefront of an effort to establish these markets when she was at FERC. And we asked her the question, are they the right tool to get us through the energy transition? Or should we think about vertically integrated utilities as the best fit here? So look forward to hearing her answer that question and hope everybody enjoys the show. So Dean, I'd love to hear about your current role, the stuff that you're working on, and what you're really excited about in the energy world today. Thanks, Noha, and it's a pleasure to be here with you all today. I am currently in the private practice of law, and I represent clients across the energy sector, electricity sector, I call it new fuels sector, the ones that have been jump-started by the Inflation Reduction Act including hydrogen and carbon capture. I also represent clients in the natural gas and sustainable aviation fuels sectors. So in electricity, which is probably my biggest client base, I actually have clients all across the landscape, startups and entrepreneurs in new fuels, in distributed generation, in tech platforms and renewables, independent developers of generation, both renewables and um, natural gas and hydrogen, fuel generation, utilities, both privately owned and publicly owned, 
transmission owners, a regional transmission organization, and I represent investors, universities, and a number of Native American tribes wanting to be part of the clean energy future and large customers. So because of my client base, I've had a really enlightening perspective on this energy transition. Yeah, that's an incredible client group. I mean, is it fair to say that because you have such a diverse group of firms that you're working with, that you kind of see all aspects of the transition? I'd imagine you have to pick up the phone at one point and talk to a large thermal developer, and then the phone rings again. It might be a tech company interested in data centers. Does that sound about right? That sounds about right. Or investor <laughs> wanting to invest in a energy futures trading company. Yes, it's really fascinating. I would imagine. I would also think that it must involve having to say the same thing, like like speak multiple languages, right? <laughs> Certainly, we've got, a, like over at Gable Associates at our firm, we've got a diverse client base too. We see lots of different folks in the industry, but also depending upon the level of individuals that you're talking to, I would imagine the investor that is curious about some potential opportunity there, it's almost a different language than talking to a developer that's pursuing that same type of activity. You're right. You're right. Reminds me of the days when I was a law professor, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. So Dean, what do you find to be the most challenging aspects of this transition? It's fascinating, right? It's certainly a sector in flux, like continuously moving as we look to harvest different sources to produce our light and our heat and our vehicle locomotion. And... That presents a lot of challenges. And there are more new entrants than ever before. Startups, entrepreneurs that haven't done business in this sector and are looking to understand how it works. Do you think that that pace of change today is... So we, we're talking about the transition, but I like the way that you said that is that the rules, this is sort of... Our industry sort of always seems like it's in a state of churn or flux. You've been blessed with this career that has spanned a lot of what I'll call transitions to use air quotes. Does this one feel different to you? Does it feel the same? What's your perspective on that relative to some of the other changes that you've seen? Well, well, it's fast moving and in lots of parallel paths. So I've never seen this much diversity of change ever before. And Noah asked me what some of the challenges are. And I would say for those doing business in this sector, there are a number of them. Raising capital, obviously, is one challenge. So much of our new technology is capital intensive. So it is a challenge. It's also a challenge for investors looking to invest capital. And particularly, there's a lot of capital out there for sustainable investments. And how do investors figure that out? There's also supply chain challenges, quite a few supply chain challenges. For new needed infrastructure for the transition, it's just a huge challenge to get it cited, whether it's transmission or electric vehicle charging stations, offshore wind turbines. So trying to cite it. Solar development, if we're looking for utility scale, solar development, finding the open space that exists and is suitable and looking to minimize environmental impacts of that, that's a challenge. And I would say markets, 
that were not designed for these new products. And so we have market rules that have been in existence for a while, although although these markets are 20, 25 years old, the rules and the rules have been tinkered with, yet we're seeing so many new products wanting to get into market and dealing with the market rules that weren't designed for them and prevent inadvertent, if you will, inadvertent challenges. Do you think that's just growing pains or do you think our markets are going to have to become more investor friendly? When I talk to investors, they're often stunned by things that happen in our markets, like the fact that ERCOT has seven days to reprice. So like, what? What do you mean? Yes, I think, I mean, I hope we're in the growing pains and that we're going to respond. And I do believe that we are, but it's hard. And it's hard to change market rules. I was involved with a new trade association back in maybe 2013, 2014, when FERC was looking to let storage into the markets. And the trade association had distributed generators as their members who found it difficult to participate, at least in FERC's bid-based auction markets. I suspect similarly in the ERCOT markets, since they're very similar. And we went to talk to FERC about changing the rules. And FERC was very receptive. And ultimately, FERC did change the rules to allow distributed generation in, in a better, quote unquote, better way, a more effective way. But yet still, we don't have the change of the rules itself. So it just is a very long process to change market rules. Part of it has to do with the fact that we we have incumbents, some of whom like the rules the way they are. Yeah. And, and just for folks listening out there that might have, a, have some question about what is distributed generation, what we're talking about there is like solar panels on the roof of your house that could integrate, say, with your Tesla charging station in your garage. And you would take all of these relatively small forms of energy, you would aggregate them together and they're distributed, meaning like, let's say you, everybody in your neighborhood drove a Tesla, had the Tesla charging station and had solar panels on their roof. We could aggregate those all together and sort of turn very small generators into something that looks like a big central station generator. So definitely a way to use those things more efficiently. But you can imagine how that looks very different in a market to like a large, say, gas plant or even a utility scale wind farm that sort of is kind of one discrete unit out there. And that's what you're describing as one of the regulatory challenges is trying to figure out how to fit those new technologies into these legacy markets. Is that right? That's right. Well, just to build on that one. You've been involved in the early phases of where we took and we, these markets have been around around for a long time, right? But it really was kind of George Bush Jr.'s policies in the early parts of the 2000s that sort of took them from a more nascent or fledgling stage to really the robust sort of wholesale commodity style markets than they are today. But even if we look back at your time previously in Arizona, which is a vertically integrated state, meaning it doesn't have a competitive market, there are regulated utilities that make you know investments and those investments are approved as used and useful, meaning that, the yes, they're going to do what they're supposed to be and they're a prudent use of ratepayer funds. Two very different models. If you think about managing these transitions, if neither of them are perfect, which is the best one? Which one gets us there in the best, most efficient way? That's a great question. I don't know that there's a right answer, Mike. I think for the restructured markets that have allowed generation to move away from the vertically integrated 
model, it's easier for new entrants in the generation field to get into the market, if you will. But the downside of that is that if you want to see a planned generation transition, you may well have lost your regulatory power to plan the generation. For example, if you don't have the authority over generation, then what if you think you need more storage or batteries? So in the integrated states, the state regulator could mandate more storage, for example, that more storage be incorporated. I think there's value to both. If I had my choice, I'd probably want to see markets in every and restructuring probably in every state. I think it it opens up the landscape to more entrepreneurship and to more diversity. And it also opens the world up to demand side, to feeling the effects of demand side. For example, we now have in the U.S. large electricity customers who want to buy green. And in a restructured state where there is, depending on how far the restructuring went, but where there's competition and where there's retail choice, they find it easier to buy green. You know, Sadine, it's really interesting that you say that because I was just at a EPRI workshop where one of the main points of discussion was resource adequacy. And Gordon Van Wheely from ISO New England was there. And he said, maybe resource adequacy should be the state's work. Like, don't put the ISO in that position because it's too difficult for us politically to do that. And I thought that was really interesting. It kind of goes back to what you were saying. But I don't, I don't know that those models have to be separate. Like you could have the states have some responsibility for their own resource adequacy because right now, at least, some states are pushing such aggressive renewables that they can't really meet their own load. Right. That's exactly and so right. They're benefiting from their neighbors. And that is really an interesting problem for the markets to have to deal with. They're in a really tough position. They're in a very tough position. And when you think when these markets were established in the late 90s, early 2000s, we were interested in opportunity for innovation to an extent. We were primarily interested in least cost power. At the time, we were looking to see a path forward to enable the new technology, the combined cycle gas turbines. That's not what we want today. Well, we still want least cost power, but we want green power. And we want to ensure that the more expensive producers of green power, like nuclear generators, stay online and function in the market. It's very hard to do that. And so I know that the RTOs are struggling with this issue. And what tools do they have at their disposal? Clearly, they have the markets. But I can see why Gordon would say it would be so much better if the states could mandate reliability. And to an extent, we see that happening in California, which is its own regional transmission organization to its state. And it has restructured to an extent. It was fully restructured in the 90s and then the market imploded and it rearranged things and it has restructured. But the California Public Utility Commission is very proactive in saying to its utilities, 
you must buy so many megawatts of battery storage. So it's like a combination of restructuring and and regulation. And I think the California regulators would be the first to say that they still aren't out of the woods on whether there's reliability. <laughs> sure. No, it's it's true. And, and I think that's a great observation about California because you're, you're right. In a certain sense, it's got two things going for it. It is a single state ISO, right? So it has the benefits of an RTO, but it's got that sort of empowered utility commission to, as you say, almost have that hybrid vertically integrated but competitive market model. I think, though, like one of the things that enables that is the fact that it is only one state. So like the only politics that matter to a degree is are California's, right? And right. when I think about Gordon Van Wheelie, who's the CEO of ISO New England, and for our listeners out there, it's another multi-state independent system operator, which like California ISO or like PJM, it encompasses a service territory that basically is everything east of New York State. So think about Connecticut kind of all the way to Maine. And even in, in those states, which when I tend to think about the views on green power, the transition here, there is a lot of overlap there, but they're certainly not identical. And they have their challenges where they don't all see eye to eye. I feel like it gets a lot harder to sort of replicate the California model in a more diverse multi-state type of market. Do you think something like that would even be possible in a place like ISO New England or a PJM where you had multiple states? I think it's a be a huge challenge, especially in New England, where all of those states have restructured. So the state regulator doesn't have the regulatory authority over the generation aspect of it. Now, it doesn't mean that the legislature couldn't give the states the, that authority, but it's decentralized when it comes to generation. And compare that with like the mid-continent RTO which is huge and has many, many, many states. Most of those states are vertically integrated. Not all of them, Michigan and Illinois being two that aren't, but most of them are vertically integrated. So they're dealing with the same issue in what we call MISO, the Mid-Continent Regional Transmission Organization. And the management at the RTOs are speaking directly with state regulators who have more inherent authority in their states than the New England states have over generation. So the RTOs are, are approaching the reliability issue from their markets platform, but it's harder to use their market platform to accomplish change. They can use their market platform more as a bully pulpit, and they can, to an extent, use their markets to incent the kind of generation they might want, but it's a challenge. I'm really surprised over the last couple of years, it feels like we've made a lot of progress in the West. And there's now more robust discussion about a Western RTO than I think there has ever been. And I think now it's moving at lightning speed. I would say we've made more progress in the last two years than we have in the last decade. How much do you think the transition is driving that? I think the transition is driving it significantly because I think it's from the private developer side significantly. Then the private developers or the independent developers and the new entrepreneurs are looking today the same way the combined cycle gas turbine manufacturers were looking in 2000 for an avenue for them to get their technology into the market. 
and the, the technology seems to be desirable, right? There's more and more emphasis in the states and among consumers on sustainability. And so the technology is desirable. And how does it get slotted in? If you have a vertically integrated utility without a market mechanism other than long-term contracts, it's hard for the entrepreneurs to get in the door. So I think we've seen a lot of pressures, maybe not the right word, but a lot of advocacy in the Western states from those private interests, new technology developers, customers who want green energy to find a way to get it. And one way to get it is to establish an RTO. Yeah, I mean, I tend to think so too. And I wonder if maybe that's one of the areas that helps to create more of a balanced paradigm here. When we set these markets up back in sort of the Energy Policy Act of 2005 type of timeframe, the idea was that the demand would essentially be kind of a number, right, that would get fixed. And we would say, okay, here is the amount of load that we think that we're going to have to serve. Load being like demand, how many megawatts of demand. And then we know that our forecast for that demand is going to be imperfect and that the things will change and it might be hotter or colder than we thought the weather was going to be. So we'll add a reserve margin on it. So let's say we're going to buy 150% of what we guess our demand is going to be. And we would sort of set these market up so that they would clear like that demand bid, right, would essentially clear against a stack of suppliers. What's happening today, at least the way that from some of my observations, I'd be curious about your thoughts, Sudin, is that you're seeing that decision helps you sort of get to that least cost outcome, right? Because now all of the suppliers have to bid, they have to bid in a way where they are competing with each other. They know the quantity of supply that's out there. Uh, They know the quantity of demand that's out there and they've got to kind of guess where to set their bids. But it also means that the demand side doesn't get to make a lot of its own choices, right? And the way I think about it as a consumer, that would almost be like if I wanted to go and buy a car and I said, great, I have enough money to be able to buy whatever car I want to. And somebody came back to me and said, what kind of car do you think that you want? I went, "Mm, yeah, let's see. I think I want a Porsche. I think I definitely want to drive a Porsche. I'm having a midlife crisis right now. And so it's time for me to go ahead and work those demons out here. And I hand my person the check for the Porsche and they go around, they say, good news. We ran an auction for you and we found that this is actually the cheapest vehicle that satisfies all of the requirements of a car and we're going to give it to you. And here's your change back for what we didn't spend on the Porsche. I would go, well, what gives? No, I just wanted the thing that I want, right? So it doesn't sort of allow consumers to innately decide that consumer choice element to say, I might be willing to pay a little bit more for whether it's green power or maybe it's a specific kind, offshore wind versus solar, or perhaps it's hydrogen in a given economy there. And I wonder if if we're thinking about how to sort of square this circle between the kind of the vertically integrated smooth transition and then kind of the ruthless sort of least cost design markets is one way to get there to activate that demand side and to say, maybe you large industrial customer, you just care about the cheapest type of power, or maybe you other large industrial customer, you want the cheapest version of renewable power that's out there. If we give the demand kind of more of that ability to exercise that choice, does that move us closer to a a more effective solution or harmonize maybe the two beneficial aspects of the vertical model versus the deregulated model? Yeah, you're opening up an area of thought that is just starting to happen. And yes, I think the answer is yes, but that's the simple answer because then the question is, well, how? And right now we have two models. 
One is the contract. And if you want to go out and contract for a Porsche, or if you want to go out and contract for output from a solar facility, you can in a restructured state. But if you only have a small amount of demand, it's going to be hard to find somebody who will enter into a contract with you. It's starting to happen. And, you know, like say community solar developments is starting to fill that niche. And I think one thing that's fascinating to look at in New England and New Jersey and New York is a sort of interesting variation on the contract. So you have those states with very aggressive clean energy standards saying, you know what we need? We need offshore wind. And those states understand that offshore wind is going to be more expensive than their existing generation mix. So if you want offshore wind to take off in your market, unless you change your market rules such that you have a special submarket for offshore wind or something like that, it's not going to work. So what these states are saying is, hmm, how about we, the state, in our capacity as the state, how about if we enter into contracts with offshore wind developers and we commit to buy a significant amount of their output and in turn, we will resell it, actually mandate the resale to our individual citizens in our state. So we're starting to see variations on what you rightfully call the demand side for clean energy and stimulating the demand side for clean energy. It's quite interesting to see if this will take off. Yeah, I do think it's a really exciting time on the demand side of things, because at least you know my entire career in energy, we focused on supply so much. And now we have average consumers really starting to ask some pretty complicated questions. That's right. That's right. And And we see large users starting to flex their muscle, if you will. The Apples and the Googles um, and the Facebooks of the world with their data centers as large customers of electricity, large consumers of electricity, plus providers of jobs and economic development going into new states and new regions, new locations, and saying to the state, how are you going to accommodate my desire to have green energy. Are you willing to accommodate it? I'd love to locate here, but I have a pledge of 100% green power. How are we going to do this? And we're starting to see response in, in many states. Well, we, I think we can work it out. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a positive economic solution for both the state and the corporate buyer, right? Right. I represent a university that has a sustainability goal and mandate, and the students are very supportive of it. And that university said, we care about this so much that we want to build a six megawatt solar development on open space on our campus. And that's what they're doing. Prime example of that demand side sort of choosing for itself, right? And love to see more of that growing into the market here. 
I wanted to transition a little bit into one of the things that you mentioned that you've been up to at the start of our call here is some of uh, the work you're doing with the Native American tribes and how they feature into today's energy universe and frankly, the, the energy universe of tomorrow. I would imagine that has got to be a, a fascinating and probably complex area to work with. Because as I understand it, not being an expert on sort of Native American or tribal laws, but they're kind of countries in and of themselves, right? And they sort of have this very unique status, just whether it's energy or anything else. Talk to us a little bit about that. What's, how has that been going? What are you up to there? I'd love to. Thank you. So in my home state of New Mexico, we have many, many, many Native American tribes. And when I was in the private practice of law for a period of time, I was doing energy and environmental law, but I joined a law firm that was focused on on representing uh, Native American tribes and individuals in the energy space. And so I had a, a wonderfully enriching experience being able to work with tribes. And most recently, this is public, so I can I can name names, the Morongo Band of Mission Indians, which is in California, near Palm Springs, formed a joint venture with Southern California Edison, which wanted to put a 345 KV line across the reservation for the West of Devers project to bring renewables in from Arizona to California. And as you mentioned, Indian tribes are sovereign. And in other words, there is no power of eminent domain. And the only way today to get a right of way across Native American land is with the tribe's consent. And obviously, if the tribe doesn't want to do it, the tribe doesn't do it. This was a wonderful joint venture that got its final approval from FERC from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission uh, in 2022. And the tribe invested in the project. And as a result of that investment, it owns half of the capacity on the line, um, the West of Devers line. And it and Southern California Edison operates the transmission for the tribe, but the tribe is a, a transmission owner. It's the first Native American tribally owned transmission company in America, apart from some that exist on their own reservations. And it's just been a win, 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 win. They charge the same rates as Edison charges and the transmission customers were saved from Edison having to spend another $500 million to go around the reservation and another eight years to complete the project. So this has become a model in Indian country for future partnerships between tribes and utility, the traditional utility transmission owners. And it's turned a not in my backyard situation where often transmission is to a, hey, I'd really like to have a transmission line on my property because I can participate in this business. And so it is valuable to me. So that model combined with a couple of other things make it encouraging as we look at the energy transition where we need, arguably we need more transmission to bring more renewables to market and to turn the transmission into a desirable thing instead of a I don't want it anywhere near me thing. Along with the fact that 
most Native Americans living on their reservation live communally. So there tends to be open space on the reservation. So space to put things, to put infrastructure. And many tribes in the West have big open spaces. So you have the space to do utility scale infrastructure. If moving from the transmission sector to the generation sector, wind farms and and solar development. Plus, under the Infrastructure and Jobs Act, Congress provided for $20 billion in the Tribal Energy Loan Program for a enterprise owned in whole or part by a Native American tribe to be eligible for these loans, which are essentially debt at the treasury bill rate. And so a tribally owned enterprise in whole or part can take advantage, assuming all the criteria are met, of this very low cost debt, which is obviously helpful, particularly as we look at new technologies trying to enter into the market that haven't achieved economies of scale yet, whose costs are high at trying to compete in a competitive market, this this certainly helps. So that's another driver behind the possibility that we will see more infrastructure development on Native American lands. Do you think some of these lessons learned could be applied to other underserved communities? I mean, now more than ever, and it was a topic at the PGM annual meeting, how are we impacting low-income communities? How can we change this in the energy world? It sounds to me like there's lots of nuggets here we could take. That's right. In fact, it was really pioneered by Citizens Energy, which is a small company owned by, I think, Robert Kennedy, and now Robert Kennedy Jr., or maybe now this Robert Kennedy III. And they did that with two transmission projects with San Diego Gas and Electric in Southern California and effectively invested in the project on behalf of the community. And then Citizens Energy is a not-for-profit. And so the revenues that they receive through the transmission revenues get returned to the community. Another turn it from something that nobody wants into something that everybody wants. How can you do that? And this is, um, I think, a very promising thing to think about and possible model for more than Native American tribes, maybe disadvantaged communities. Plus, there's the potential to also have the reinvestment function of that infrastructure occur in those communities too, right? Especially if you can get it, as you say, to infrastructure that we don't want there, to the type of infrastructure that we do. And then, you know, in our industry, there are things like payments in lieu of taxes and other types of sort of revenue streams that could flow back to these communities and even provide sources of funding for schools and other things like that. So it does seem like there's a combination of really great opportunities there. I did want to maybe transition a little bit over into the Inflation Reduction Act, which we've sort of teased on a couple of times here. The way I think about it is the Inflation Reduction Act does dozens and dozens of different things here. It provides 
tax incentives that are monetizable by investors who want to invest in these projects. So one of them, for example, would be what's called an ITC or an income tax credit, which would say, let's say you're a very large company and you're going to pay lots of federal income taxes. You could invest in these types of projects that are eligible for this types of tax incentive and essentially use it as a write down against your income tax. And so it's now like another commodity or monetizable thing that is out there. Lots of grant funding for like future of the world projects. There's opportunities for government backed loan programs. So for newer technologies that might be perceived as riskier or too risky for conventional investors, the federal government for vis-a-vis the Department of Energy would step in and say, okay, we'll underwrite sort of a meaningful piece of the capital stacks that we can get there. And that allows conventional investors or financial institutions, lenders and things to kind of come in over the top of that federally guaranteed loan and then top up the capital stack so projects can get over the finish line. So it certainly sounds like it's got some really exciting promise here. I wanted to touch on an area that you had mentioned earlier. Some of these, like I'll call them futuristic types of fuels or strategies, hydrogen power and things like that. I mean, I'll be honest with you, it does feel a little far off to me, but how real do you think the kind of the hydrogen transition is? Is it something that we think we might see in the next five years or 10 years? Or are we, is it cold fusion where maybe someday <laughs> way down the road, it might, might work out for us? How does the IRA help that? And kind of what does the future for those emerging technologies look like to you? Well, the for hydrogen, the Inflation Reduction Act has significant incentives that I am told some incentives you can stack so you can have the investment, the base investment tax credit, and then there are tax credits for locating enterprises in disadvantaged communities, locating enterprises in communities where there has been like a fossil fuel development historically, like coal development areas, as an incentive to transition the economy from fossil fuels to renewables, including hydrogen. So you can stack credits if you were to engage in an enterprise with a tribe. Not only would you have an investment tax credits, but you have the ability potentially to fund the debt side of the transaction with low interest debt. So it can happen. Certainly, there are a lot of challenges and the credits available for hydrogen are on a spectrum of the greener the hydrogen is, the more credit is available. And by green hydrogen, we mean that the hydrogen was produced with a zero emission fuel. So hydrogen exists in the air, but not hydrogen gas. So there's a lot of H in the air, but not H2, which is the gas. So you actually, we need in most, there's some naturally occurring hydrogen gas, but it's not like you can drill a well and tap into it and and get it like conventional oil or gas. So one of the most promising ways to produce hydrogen is to run an electric current through water and you basically split off the oxygen and the hydrogen and, and you have an H2, you have hydrogen gas. So getting that, but where does that electricity come from? So some people are starting to talk about nuclear generators being a possibly prime generator of, of hydrogen because they're baseload 24-7 and zero emissions and clean. 
at least carbon clean, and that would be green hydrogen. So plus there is money from the Infrastructure Act to create, quote unquote, hydrogen hubs in the United States. And DOE has put out a request for proposals for entities, states primarily, that would like to see a hydrogen hub in their state. So my home state of of New Mexico has joined with Arizona and Colorado and Utah to apply for a hydrogen hub grant that would jumpstart the hydrogen economy in the Southwest. In part, those states are looking to replace their traditional extracted resources of oil, gas, and coal with hydrogen as well as solar and wind. So it's expensive, yes. And it's new technology, yes. And it's going to be a challenge to transport it or liquefy it, depending on what we want to use it for. But it's it's actually, there's a line of sight to making it happen. And that's because the Infrastructure Act and the Inflation Reduction Act are frankly, providing the money to potentially make it affordable. It's a fascinating time in the energy sector, is I guess how we started out, right? It is really, really fascinating. And and I'd say the Inflation Reduction Act is a real game changer. Yeah, you know, we don't get energy legislation often, but when we do, I do feel like it really is a catalyst for change. I agree with you, Noha. I mean, we, we think it's historically difficult to get energy policy done in Congress because we're a nation that has richness and diversity of resources, right? We're not like France that doesn't have any energy resource and they can settle on a policy that says, oh, we'll develop nuclear. We have everything, coal and gas and wind and sun and uranium, and we can do everything. But trying to get all those interests on the same page going forward, the last time we did that was in 2005, and to me, the Inflation Reduction Act, like you say, Noha, is, is an energy policy act. And I know it was a tax act, but it's enacted energy policy through the tax laws. Fascinating. Yeah, and I feel like technology is really what's going to drive those interests together. You look at what Mansion is doing now to incentivize storage. Like you said, Arizona, New Mexico, and others working together. Those states weren't alive. They weren't considering something in the West. And now that they can see an economic benefit for their state by implementing some of these new technologies and having a market to sell it into, everyone's starting to think about things a little bit differently. That's right. And we should add offshore wind to that. Right. And we're looking now off the East Coast and off the West Coast and in the Gulf. I know I mentioned this to you before, too. Technology the social responsibility goals, renewables, I think are also driving more women in this space. I mean, I know when I started 15 years ago, I showed up to a PJM meeting and there were literally four of us and it was very depressing. Um, you know, I'm sure, and I'm sure you could tell stories that would far outdo mine, but now I have a panel at my conference for the Energy Trading Institute on storage and it's all women. And that was not because I decided to only pick women. It just so happens that the folks in these policy leadership positions are women. That's right. That's more interesting to us than combined cycle natural gas combustion technology was 20 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Or 
the creation of wholesale bid-based auction markets. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yawn, what a bore, right? What a bore. bore. Well, and, and our children talk about it. Our children understand climate change. They have come to understand severe weather events. They're concerned about their future in a world where we have global warming. And it's really spread across societies to become much more of a value. And, you know, that value wasn't even known hardly 20 years ago. And they talk about it at school now. My five-year-old came home and he's like, Mom, you need to turn the lights off. When we're not in the room, you need to turn the lights off. And I was like, who are you? You're five. And he's like, we talked about it at school today. Mm -hmm. Yep. My six-year-old lectured me on the same thing, right? And, <laughs> you know, needing to conserve energy. And our neighbors yeah. got solar panels installed on their roof a couple of months ago. And she took me into the backyard and explained all how solar panels were working because her <laughs> kindergarten class had done it. And it's, I mean, it's true. And I think there's so many confluences of factors, right, that are driving this. But we all need to use energy, right? We all, it touches on everyone, regardless of you know, your makeup or your political beliefs or what have you here. And so it is a universal trade. And I think it's wonderful that we're sort of seeing ourselves moving into a direction where our industry is much more representative than it was before. But we're enacting policies like the IRA that are thoughtfully sort of trying to approach the transition and say, if we're going to have a very different world, energy world in the future, then we need to think about it in a way that is sort of more inclusive, that is more directly responsive to its customers, which is all of us. And I think that's a hallmark of that piece of legislation for sure. Right. More affordable. I mean, and think more affordable. a year and a half ago, even we were talking about transitioning to a world of 80% renewables. How are you going to get there? Right. And well, we could see how you could get there. It's mm-hmm. how we can get there today. Not only the more renewables, but you need storage or you need uh, less intermittent renewables like offshore wind that are more efficient so that you otherwise you need to have it's not redundant but you need backup power and the costs keep mounting to try and create achieve a sustainable reliable resilient electric grid so to me one of the most wonderful things about the inflation reduction act is that in addition to all the the drivers that it it has to incent our technology and our advanced clean energy technology, it's making it affordable for consumers. Very well said. So as as we integrate more renewables in the grid, right now we've got more megawatts on the grid, more megawatts waiting to come on the grid that are renewable than what is currently live on the grid. So we're talking about a massive renewable integration, which could create some reliability problems. What are your thoughts on that and how do we handle that situation? Yeah, it really creates reliability problems that are reliability problems at a micro level. It's like when Mike was talking earlier about when we first set up these markets and we thought, oh, you just have the supply and the demand and you have a clearing price and it'll be simple. What we're realizing is that as you get a higher percentage of renewables on the grid, of course you have intermittency. And of course, when the wind doesn't blow, the turbines aren't generating. And when the sun isn't shining, the solar panels aren't generating. And you need to have power when that happens as to take over. But what we're finding is that there's like micro reliability issues. So 
the solar panels are generating, but then you have a big rainstorm and the cloud cover comes in and it's in the middle of the day and the solar panels are still generating to an extent, but you drop. And if you have like say 70%, 80% of your portfolio is intermittent, those what we used to think of as little micro drops, they're big drops. And if we want to have our power the way we've always had it, reliable 24 seven, no brownouts, no voltage drops, we have to have something that picks up the slack. So what is that? It turns out that higher percentage of renewables you have, you want to put battery storage in to pick up the slack. The amount of battery storage you need is enormous. And then you have to worry about when you power the batteries, when you charge the batteries, and are you going to charge the batteries off the solar farm? And then you're going to have to overbuild the solar farm to charge the batteries at How many are you going to discharge the batteries? So it's a huge challenge. And traditionally, we've used dispatchable baseload generation, which for, I know not all of our listeners are energy geeks. So baseload generators are those generators that you can rely on to produce electricity whenever you want. You can turn them on or you can ramp them up and ramp them down. And traditionally, it's been nuclear although it's hard to ramp nuclear up and down very quickly, um, and natural gas fire generators and coal generators, and to an extent, hydro facilities. Well, we need more backup generation with more renewables. And as we look at our policies of retiring coal and of not building gas fire generators, where are we going to get that? So where can we get it? It turns out that we thought it could be battery storage and it still can be, but it's going to be an enormous amount. So are we really going to be able to solve all of our storage backup problems for renewables with that? Probably not. So are we going to get more hydro power? Probably not too much more in the US. There's hydropower available in Canada that we potentially could import. And we're going to need a lot of transmission to do that. We just saw recently that the citizens of Maine just revolted against putting a big transmission line into New England to bring Canadian hydropower in. So that's going to be a challenge. Are we going to build small modular nuclear plants? Well, maybe. (laughs) But that's a new technology that's like hydrogen. You know, that's a challenge too. So The reliability challenge associated with increasing penetration of renewables is more challenging than we had thought five years ago. Do you think this is in line with the Clean Power Plan when it was enacted and and people said, it's not that we don't want to do this, it's that the timeline is too aggressive? Yeah. So is it that, you know, we can eventually deal with phasing out coal and gas if that's what what we want the policies to be in those areas? but just it won't be in the next five years. Maybe it'll be in the next 10. I think you're right, Noha. I think you're right. Unless we do 100%, well, even if we were to do 100% subsidy of batteries, even if the US government was to pay for all the batteries we need, we can't build them that quickly. We don't have the material. We have the supply chain problems. We have the rare earth mineral problems. Yeah. 
in truth going to be a transition, a, a phase of time. Absolutely well said. And, and, you know, the charging, discharging thing, we have pumped hydro storage. So for folks that might not be familiar with that, these are big, giant lakes, literally, for example, Bath County, which is the biggest pumped hydro facility in the country is about 3000 megawatts. It's enormous. It's a huge generator. And it's a giant lake that sits on the border of West Virginia and Virginia. And basically, there are these small pumps that pump water up into this pond high up into the mountains. And when they need to generate, they essentially release water from the pond through the the dam and it turns a bunch of generators. But those are the really the only facilities that we have out there. And there aren't a ton of them where we actually have to charge them back up to use them, right? I mean, Sudin, your point is a really good one. We saw in this summer where California was struggling with the heat wave and some of the issues there, figuring out state of charge for its batteries was a big deal. And it's a very different paradigm when you're starting to say, okay, if I discharge this now, not only is it not available to me as a generator, but at some other point I have to charge it back up and it becomes a load in and of itself to make it a generator again. And to have that sort of elasticity in the way that it works, that's going to be a tricky one for us to solve, especially if we're looking at it, as you say, as kind of like the dominant backup generation technology that's out there. So it's a really great point on the reliability side. And well, I think we'll have to explore further whether the reliability needs flange up with the policy timeline in all cases. And, you know, one thing, as you say that, Mike, it reminds me that it also implicates another thing we were talking about earlier, and that is state regulation, regulation of generation, RTO regulations. Like, who's in charge of making sure the batteries get charged? Right. Right. Sounds like somebody's going to have to regulate that. <laughs> Maybe they well, can yeah. come up Maybe we could come up with a market that will do it, but sounds right. like at least we're we need some regulators in there of some sort. Yes, I totally agree. And I feel like that is a space that is underexplored and we're only now appreciating how difficult that's going to be. And you're right. And who's going to be in charge, right? Who's calling balls and strikes? So. Well, Sudin, I want to thank you so much for joining us. This has been a spectacular conversation. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. We are in such a dynamic industry at such a dynamic time. We really lucked out. <laughs> Back in the day, no, how when, as a woman, do I want to be involved with all this stuff? It was the right decision. <laughs> <laughs> Just took and a while to hit, hit lucky, pay dirt. Very lucky to have had people like you in those public policy roles and now in the private sector, really helping us shepherd through all these issues. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been an honor and it's been a lot of fun too. <laughs> You've been listening to No Power, hosted by Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti. Head on over to nopowershow.com, that's K-N-O-W, where you can subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next time on No Power. <laughs>